and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Septic Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have back at a returning guest today, and I'm really fascinated to have him on again. I have with me from the Fifth Kind TV, uh, from his books, uh, uh, Echoes of Eden, Scars of Eden, and Escaping from Eden. I have with me Paul Anthony Wallace, or Paul Wallace. He's an internationally best-selling author whose books probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insights into human origins, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. As a senior churchman, Paul served as a church doctor, theological, theological ed- educator, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia, and has published numerous titles on Christian mysticism and spirituality. He's a popular speaker at summits and conferences around the world. His 2020 book, Escaping from Eden, was held by George Norrie as the Generation's Chariots of the Gods, propelling Paul onto the international stage as the go-to guy in the field of paleocontact. The internationally best-selling 2021 sequel, The Scars of Eden, is endorsed by Eric Von Daniken. His new book, Echoes of Eden, endorsed by George Norrie, has just been released. Paul's interviews and documentaries on the Paul Wallace YouTube channel and on the Fifth Kind TV are watched by millions of people worldwide. So I want to give him a big warm welcome back to my show. Paul, thank you for coming back on. How are you? G'day, Robert. I'm tip-top, thanks. And thanks for having me on your show again. Yeah, it's good to see you. I I love talking about these subjects with you. Uh, We always get into great discussions. Um, I wanted to ask you, I I read uh, uh, Escaping from Eden and Scars of Eden, and I think my audience has too. Where did you want to go with Echoes of Eden? It seems like you wanted to focus on the experiencer. Well, yes, there is more of an aspect on the experiencer and the so what of paleo contact. People might say, well, what difference does it make if our ancestors had contact with ETs in the deep past? Or what difference does it make that we've inherited certain things from periods of paleo contact in the deep past? What I found was that at the end of Escaping from Eden, I had got to a place where I was actually very excited about the implications for us today regarding human potential. What are we capable of if these are the real stories of our origins, stories rooted in paleo contact? And I had noticed that when you listen with an open ear to world mythology and to the world's uh, ancestral narratives from indigenous traditions, the themes of ancient ET contact and human potential are absolutely interwoven and those traditions talk about higher cognitive powers the possibility that we can live more intelligently more consciously on this planet and have a better human experience and so that's where escaping ends and and I knew I had to go back and explore that further the scars of Eden looks at what what is the impact what is the aftermath how has society been altered by contact in the deep past? And does that help us to understand the present day any differently? And again, at the end of the Scars of Eden, I recognized that 
the wisdom with which to answer those questions resides with our world of ancestral narratives. So in Echoes, I go back and sit at the feet of the guardians of indigenous cultures all around the world. And I find a coherent picture regarding human potential, human origins, our human future. And I find that there is a coherent body of information that has been suppressed in every age and yet somehow manages to resurface and be rediscovered by every generation. And I'm hoping that Echoes of Eden will be part of the rediscovery in this generation. I was going to say, do you think we're going through that now? I'm, it seems like we're going through an, um, definitely an awakening, pro, awakening process. And like, it seems like people are more interested in this subject, that they want to discover their real heritage and their real roots. And I think our history, especially, you know, whether it's the Anunnaki or the story of um, and I know in Australia, you have a deep ET contact history there. They have the Gossamer glyphs where uh, they say there's Pleiadian writing. And as you say, there's stories all over the world. I know you talk about um, the, the Mammy water tradition where people are abducted and taken to an underwater base. So I think it's prevalent, but do you think people are, this is the right time. Do you think people are really getting into this now? I think there's an enormous appetite for this kind of information right now i'm contacted every week and some weeks it's every day by people telling me i no longer believe what i did 10 years ago i've got a tremendous appetite on me to find out what's really going on what's the truth of uh, the human story what are we really capable of and what strikes me is that it's people in every age bracket who are saying this to me so I've recently heard from a whole sequence of people in their 80s who said exactly that to me. And I think that's unusual. I think there is a great appetite on people at the moment and a massive unlearning, relearning, deprogramming, reprogramming that people are intentionally going through. People really do want to know what's the truth of who we are, what we're capable of. Can we have a better experience than this on planet Earth? I've not seen this kind of curiosity um, and reframing in my lifetime, for sure. So, yes, I think there's something special happening right now that we've not seen before. Yeah, I, I want to compare it to when you talk about our, our, our human potential. If you look at the old Sumerian tale, the myth of Adapa, I think it's interesting in there because they talk about how the Anunnaki made Adamu or Adapa. And there's a quote in there. I've heard Matthew LaCroix say it before. They say he was the wisest of the Anunnaki and he was human. So it makes me wonder, did they make us better than them? Or did they give us qualities inside us that we can even be better than our ET predecessors? What are your thoughts? Yes. Oh, that's a really interesting question because that conversation uh, and in fact, the conflict over that issue repeats in ancestral narratives all around the world. It's there in Genesis 3. Translated conventionally, it's the story of the fall, where um, you know uh, Adam and Eve eat the apple, they get forbidden knowledge, so on and so forth. And in the current translation, it's God who wants to keep the humans so primitive they don't even know they're naked. He wants to keep them at an animal level. And it's the serpent who wants to upgrade them for a better human experience. Well, you read that translation, you know something's off. God can't be the one against human progress, can he? When you do the 
translation work I argue for in Escaping from Eden, you realize that that story is just one iteration of many that talks about a conflict over how intelligent the human beings should be in the context of a long program of genetic modification. So in Genesis 3, you've got one faction saying, we don't want them too clever. We don't want them as clever as us, is the point that's made there. You can go to Nigeria and listen to the epic story of origins and the powerful beings there, the sky people, uh, Basi and Atai, also say, we don't want them as clever as us. They've got so clever, we're now struggling to manage them. You go to the Mesoamerican story of the Mayan tradition and the Popol Vuh and the chief genetic engineer, Kukumats, aka Kukulkan, aka Quetzalcoatl, is conducting a sequence of experiments to try and get a Homo sapiens that's clever enough to be useful to them as a working class, but not so intelligent that they won't want to work for them. And as in many stories, Quetzalcoatl overshoots the mark and he creates a homo sapiens 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 so us plus homo sapiens that's even cleverer than we are a little bit more remote viewing than we have a little more precognition than we have better telepathic connection better self-healing and sure enough they have an emergency meeting to say how can we dial these down so that they'll be just smart enough to work for us and that conversation, how can we dial them down because we've made them too clever? Well, that's in Genesis 11, the Babel story. It's in the Zeus and Prometheus story from out of ancient Greece. It's in the Abassi and Atai story from out of Nigeria. It's almost a universal aspect of the story of origins according to world mythology. And so the essence of that is the beings that were generated surprised our progenitors, surprised the ancient genetic engineers. They were surprised at how intelligent and conscious the humans were after they'd uh, done a bit of crossbreeding, splicing a bit of their own DNA into ours. And I have a theory that they were surprised because they underestimated the intelligence that we brought with us from our animal and mammal heritage. I mean, my dog is probably a better remote viewer uh, than I am. Uh, birds certainly have a better sense of direction. My cat can see things I can't see. I just wonder if they underestimated how much we were bringing to the party as earthlings and they ended up with a species too smart. And so Zeus punishes Prometheus for making the human beings a technological species. Abassi and Atai release devices into the environment to make the humans mentally ill and physically ill to make them more manageable. In the uh, Mayan story, a vapor is sprayed over human populations to brain damage them so that we'll no longer have remote viewing, precognition, telepathic connection, so on and so forth. So this is how the theme repeats all around the world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I wonder, it makes me wonder what our real potential is because as I've been doing this research and as I've been meditating and you know, it, practicing remote viewing and practicing psi abilities, I've been able to open up my own psychic abilities. And I feel like oh, yes. people can too. Have you, have, since you've yeah, been writing exactly. your books, have you had the same experience? Very much so. And that's very much um, a theme within Echoes of Eden, looking at, well, it, we can talk about having higher 
cognitive abilities, but can we engage them? And Echoes of Eden says, yes, we absolutely can. I've had some experience of it. And to take us further, we really need to sit at the feet of elders and guardians of indigenous traditions who've maintained protocols through generations of enhancing our consciousness. And you mentioned remote viewing. I've got a long section in Echoes of Eden talking about how the US had a remote viewing program running through the CIA, still does, although it's now subcontracted out. The roots of the British intelligence service, MI5 and MI6, were a department of remote viewing, which John Dee had set up, tasked to do that by Queen Elizabeth I. I believe she believed it was possible because of what was in the literature of the day, some of which had come from the Mayan tradition and some from elsewhere. And I love how the Mayan story hints at the possibility of remote viewing because it says that the Homo sapiens 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 had vision that wasn't limited in the way ours is. So if you stop and think, well, how is our vision limited? It's limited by surfaces. You can't see into things, through things, or behind things. Limited by distance. You can't see beyond the horizon. You can't see into deep space. Limited by time. You can only see the present. You can't see the past. You can't see the future. Uh, limited by frequency. We can only see this spectrum of radio waves. Maybe a cat can see this, a dog can see this. Take all those limits off, and now you can see into deep space. You can remote view the rings of Jupiter, as Ingo Swan did in 1973, before any scientist has even posited that they existed. You can do future viewing. You can have X-ray vision with all the implications for self-healing. And so those implications were understood by the West back in the 1500s. In the meantime, indigenous traditions around the world had been practicing initiation ceremony to switch these faculties on for each new generation of young people as they came up to initiation age. And this gives a, a little bit of a clue as to why through the ages, uh, colonizing powers have always sought to extinguish indigenous wisdom and slaughter indigenous priests, burn indigenous literature, and in the US, for instance, for a hundred years, illegalize indigenous initiation ceremony because they didn't want knowledge, information, and abilities passed on from one generation to the next. And so I talk about this in Echoes of Eden, this pattern that you can find in every age where there's an attempted sequestering of human technologies for government and a rubbishing of it for everybody else or a suppression of it to the extent that priests are executed and texts are destroyed so that if there's any possibility of remote viewing, it's only known by intelligence services, not by you and me, for instance. Yeah, and, and I was I was hoping I was thinking about this the, the story of Barassus writing Oannes and Ap the Apkalu. I you you touch on that in Echoes of Eden. I thought that was kind of important to talk about as well. Yes, well, one of the stories that has been forbidden by every colonizing power has been the story of paleo contact. So when I was in Brazil, for instance. In the 1980s, I attended some harvest festivals. 
And I thought I knew what was going on. I thought we were thanking God for another harvest. That's what harvest festivals meant in England when I was growing up. But I had a guide who said, you might want to look and listen a little bit more closely because none of the ceremonies that happen before we go into the church building are Catholic ceremonies. So you might want to ask where they've come from and what they're really celebrating. And as I did a little more careful investigation, I realized my guide was absolutely right, that glued on to the Catholic mass of Thanksgiving for the harvest was the celebration of contact with an entity referred to as the Queen of Heaven. Now, I thought that meant Jesus's mum, because that's one of the titles the Catholic Church gives to Mary. And I found out, no, the Queen of Heaven came from the stars thousands of years ago to teach our ancestors all the secrets of agriculture, how to turn naturally occurring plants into cultivatable crops, how to turn those crops into food, how to live off those crops in a way that doesn't deplete them. That's what we're celebrating, the gift of food. And so we've got uh, corn figurines representing this female entity that taught us these things. And then foods and drinks all derived from corn, the great leap forward. So this is a story of paleo contact. Now, looking back, I understand why Pope John Paul II was trying to clean up all those ceremonies so that all that remained was the mass in the church and the indigenous knowledge that had come from the interior of Brazil and the indigenous knowledge that had come from West Africa when Africans were stolen and used as slaves in the plantations in Brazil. All those stories which carried the memory of paleo contact Pope John Paul was trying to wipe them out. And it was an absolute parallel. If if I had gone to a town near Jerusalem in the seventh century BCE, I would have had an identical experience, harvest festivals where we are remembering paleo contact, entities that came and gave us the secrets of agronomy that achieved for us this great leap forward from living in animal subsistence on a planet's surface to being civilization builders. Again, there were people from HQ in Jerusalem trying to stamp out these ceremonies, stamp out the name of Asherah, get rid of the figurines of Asherah. That was the name they gave to the female entity that gave these primordial lessons. And you could find that all around the world, this memory of first contact. And Barossus describes it beautifully in his account of first contact. He's writing a Babylonian document. So first contact refers to first contact in the Fertile Crescent. We're talking about the ancestors of the Sumerians, really. And he talks about these entities coming from somewhere who are not human and who taught our ancestors all the accoutrements of life as a civilization. And what I love about his description is that that moment of first contact is described in a way that tells us what the people were thinking as they saw these strange visitors. And they weren't impressed by their technology or their advanced wisdom. What they were perplexed by is, why do they look so strange? Are they human or not? And they're wearing clothes that cover the whole of their body. This was completely strange to them that you'd have clothing covering the whole of your body. And what is that textile? It's so thin and silvery. It's like the skin of a fish. 
And it's almost like you're hearing the thoughts as they finger the clothing and wonder why their visitors look so strange. Well, that's exactly how you would expect our ancient ancestors to respond to people arriving from elsewhere, elsewhere in the cosmos, as I would argue, and teaching them the, all the accoutrements of civilization. It's a lovely visual moment. And it's one of many that when you listen, especially to the correlations of stories around the world, you realize it is visual memory that's being described to you. It's not a book that's gone around the world and been retranslated. It's not a story that's gone as oral tradition in Chinese whispers. Different cultures have different language, different metaphor, different names to describe the same thing their ancestors saw. And it was those correlations of visual memory and sometimes auditory memory that have made me listen to world mythology and ancestral narrative differently that make me approach it with the question, what did they see? What is the memory that this story has been written to carry? Yeah, and I, I think it was what you, a couple of things you pointed out that were really interesting is it wasn't just Barassus who wrote about, you know, the ancient ET contact. I wrote that, I wrote my notes here that you had said Plato was getting some information from ET contact, as well as the Hermetic text and the Cathars. I heard you touch on those and other shows. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's right. All of those uh, sources that you mentioned talk about contact as one of their sources of wisdom and understanding. So Plato says that he has a number of sources of information and one is what he called philosophy. I think really we would call it science because it's the application of logic to things we can all observe. And much of his writing is structured that way and it's absolutely inspiring the far reaching conclusions he arrives at through that simple method. But then he also talks about information that's come to him from ancestral narratives. And he has information which he says specifically came from the remnant of the ancient Egyptian priesthood. And they said their information came from the remnant of the Atlantean civilization. So that's rather interesting and curious, a subject all its own. But then Plato was also very open that some of his information came from interdimensional contact with other entities. Now, Plato actually credits this experience to Socrates, but I argue in Echoes of Eden that this is an experience Plato had had. He's referring to a psychedelic experience he had in Athens through ingesting a um, special brew that had been curated by a cult called the Eleusinian sect. And Initiates, here's this pattern of initiation again, Initiates of that sect were given this tea to induce, in effect, a near-death experience, carefully curated so people wouldn't actually die, but taking people close enough that they begin to have experiences of contact with other kinds of entity. And then they come back informed by that contact. So that's the claim Plato slash Socrates makes. It's also the same claim that's made by the writers of the Corpus Hermeticum. And it's some people might say, oh, that's just a, a literary um, gloss. This is just framing the information that the book gives. 
But when you realize there's this context of literature around the world, of writers willing to say some of this information came from a contact experience, you start raising an eyebrow. It's there in the Bible too, by the way. It sounds really far out, I think, to uh, uh, many a mainstream listener or a person of faith uh, in today's world. But when you go to the roots of Christianity, if you look in Hebrews 12, there's a little section there about ancestral spirits having contact with us who are very interested in how we're living our lives and are intending in some way to spur us on in our own progress through life. And there's another passage in 1 John 4 in which the writer fully expects the early Christians to be having contact experiences with beings he calls spirits. And he never defines what they are. Does he mean ancestral spirits? Does he mean interdimensional contact? Does he mean physical beings who communicate telepathically? By spirit, does he mean a non-material being? Or does he mean a material being? Because in some cultures, a spirit is a material being. In, in um, New Guinea, the uh, word moon spirit refers to a three-dimensional creature that looks like a gecko and that travels in some kind of vessel that can get it from here to the moon. So that's not a disembodied immaterial thing. That's a solid thing that exists in the, uh, in the heritage of, uh, of PNG. So uh, these are just a few examples that talk very openly in the past about contact. And yet through the ages, this kind of conversation and information has been pushed out of the mainstream. It's there in the Bible, but it's not in the core curriculum of Christianity. And if you go to traditional healers around the world, you'll get the same worldview with regard to ongoing contact to support us in our progress through life. But if you go to Zambia, you'll have to go to one of the villages to hear this, to one of the traditional healers. You won't hear it in school. You won't hear it on the TV. And that's the pattern I talk about in Echoes of Eden, one layer of information carried at the folkloric level and the other carried by government, education, school, etc. It's at the folkloric level that we discover all the stories of paleocontact and the protocols for releasing higher human cognitive power. Yeah, I was wondering, do you think we're being prepared for contact now on a mainstream level? Like, I realize there's all this contact going on, and you touch on that. Like, if we want to talk about a modern day case, you touch on the Zimbabwe encounter, which I think is one of the best modern day examples of uh, contact, where the, all those school kids saw that craft, and they had some kind of telepathic messages from beings. But so, so two questions like did you think that was a knockout as far as like a you know a modern contact case i guess that's why you put it in the book but then also do you think we're being prepared for contact on a mainstream level uh yes and yes uh yes i do think we're being uh, prepared i think that what we're seeing now with uh senate briefings congressional hearings um NASA talking about investigating uh, contact. This is something we've not seen for 70 years. For 70 years, the story has been, there's no such thing as ETs, how ridiculous, and there's no such thing as UFOs and close encounters. Everything started accelerating in 2017 
when Chris Mellon, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, leaked the Pentagon's footage of the USS Nimitz encounter with a Tic Tac craft. So that was suddenly viewable by the general public and it was on the TV for us all to see. Two years later, 2019, the Pentagon comes forward and authenticates that and says, yes, those were UFOs to use the old fashioned term. And in fact, we've had a unit in place for 70 years investigating these encounters and investigating physical materials retrieved from UFO crashes. And yes, indeed, Louis Elizondo did head it up for 10 years. Then we heard from Alain Gillet, the former chief of French security, saying, yes, that's all correct. And I was there when the current iteration of that unit was set up for that investigation. We've heard from physicists who briefed these bodies. So we've heard from um, Jacques Vallée. We've heard from Eric W. Davis talking about materials retrieved from off-world vehicles not made on this earth. Then we heard from Hamish Ed, the Brigadier General, who for 27 years was the Chief of Space Security for Israel, joining the dots for us, in case we hadn't done that already, saying that at a covert government level, we've been in contact with spacefaring civilizations for a long, long time, but they've chosen not to self-disclose until we all have a fuller understanding of what space is, which is a curious turn of phrase. So these kinds of disclosures from figures this authoritative is new. There was a little precursor to it a decade ago when Dmitry Medvedev, then the prime minister of Russia, said on camera, every new prime minister of Russia is given a dossier detailing the spacefaring civilizations we're already in contact with. And you can probably find that footage still on YouTube and watch for yourself. Ask yourself, do you think he's joking? Doesn't look like he's joking and he wasn't debunked by the president. So there's been this acceleration of information. Yes, I think it is um, preparing us for contact, preparing us for disclosure, but not too aggressively. It's almost an insurance against disclosure. It's almost, I think, activity that's done so that if suddenly something happens that makes it blindingly obvious we're in contact, the authorities can say, oh, don't you remember, we've already talked about this. Uh, yeah. But there's enough, I think, to move us forward. And as for the Ruhr encounter at Ariel School, watch that. Watch James Fox's movie, The Phenomenon where he has interview footage with the children who experienced this mass sighting in the 1990s. Listen to the interviews between John Mack, who was then the head of clinical psychology for Harvard, as he interviews the children days after the encounter. And ask yourself, are these children telling the truth? It was a mass sighting, very, very significant for that reason. There have been other really interesting mass sightings and in the scars of Eden I talk about one in Australia the 1966 Westall incident that's interesting because it was not only a school full of children who interacted with beings from craft that landed adjacent to the school but there were official authorities present within minutes as well so you had the police you had the air force you had the army the press was there 
shortly after to interview people about what had happened. What's interesting about that account is how that experience, though it was a mass sighting, was suppressed. And you have to stop and ask, why was it suppressed? What does that tell us about the, um, the politics of contact? And I think those two stories side by side are, are powerful, but I happen to think that there's contact experiences happening all the time. And I hope that my books will encourage people to share their own experiences with friends and family. I do think we're moving into a time when we're better able to listen without prejudice and without ridicule to each other's experiences. And I think if we do that, we will put together a picture pretty quickly that indicates that we are not alone on this planet or in this corner of the cosmos. And really, we've never been. Yeah. Did you did you have an experience yourself? I, I know you you said you visited Barbara Lamb in your book. Did you did you talk about that? It'll, um, uh, I can't remember. Yes, I sort of teased the reader with that in The Scars of Eden, because um, in The Scars of Eden, I asked the question, has humanity confused the idea of God with memories of E.T. contact? And so I go into the Bible and in, into world ancestral narratives to answer that question. But that phrase, memories of E.T. contact, is a, a double theme in the book, because through The Scars of Eden, I'm beginning to remember experiences of my own and how they parallel experiences of other people around the world and so at the end of scars of eden i'm about to go in for a regression session to see if i can unsurface some more memory of some strange things that happened to me back when i was 20 and that's exactly where echoes of eden starts and um in that i look at well what was it that happened what was my experience how does it relate to a world full of experiences. And what's the, uh, the so what of that? What difference does that make? And for me, it has to do with where it's taken me in terms of a drive to listen to stories that are often fiercely suppressed, suppressed with violence, suppressed at times with genocide. You mentioned the Cathars. Uh, some historians estimate that a million French people were genocided by 19 successive popes and their armies in order to rid the world of the information that they carried, information that was rooted in contact, information that was um, empowering in terms of actualizing higher cognitive powers and having a better human experience on planet Earth. The Cathars were noted by their neighbors because they had built a better society in the long dock in the 1200s. This is the period where it all comes to the crunch point. It was their neighbors who called them the Cathars, which means the good people, the pure ones, because they noticed that in the long dock, you did not have the high rates of crime and murder, uh, poverty that were endemic in medieval Europe. People wanted to know how they'd done this and how the Cathars had done it links with what we were talking about before, which was um, going back to ancestral narratives, to forbidden stories, to Gnostic stories, to Gnostic forms of Christianity, and learning how to activate what some people might today call their higher self. 
And the idea that we, we have higher dimensions of ourselves that we can access, higher cognitive powers, higher levels of information and understanding is not new. That's what the Cathars were all about. And they had turned it into a living lifestyle and a working society. And it was so threatening to the feudalism of the day, so threatening to the power of kings and queens and popes, that it was responded to as if it were a military threat. And a hundred years of genocide was perpetrated until every last one of the Cathars had been killed. And um, to use an apt metaphor, that's a smoking gun, that there was powerful information there that you and I might do well to take an interest in. Yeah. Um, and you spoke about the being the high, getting to our higher self and turning on these powers. One interesting story that I heard you tell was, I thought this was so amazing about this boy in Brazil that gets struck by lightning and his house blows up. And I'll let you take it from there. If you could tell that story. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it is an amazing story. And uh, when I wrote the story of Taran, that's the name I give him in Echoes of Eden, when I wrote his story in Echoes of Eden, I had never heard anything like it. it. Now, since publishing Echoes of Eden, I have heard more stories of almost identical experiences. What happened to Taran when he was five years old, he was struck by lightning. His house was struck by lightning. His house exploded, but he somehow survived, temporarily blinded but he recovered his sight. Otherwise, he was perfectly well, much to the astonishment of his family, except that from that time to this, his life has been changed by it. Since that time, he has had recurring experiences of precognition. So he will see things happening long before they happen, and then they happen exactly as he saw. So this is one of those higher cognitive powers we talked about before. And then every so often, a little less frequently, he has the experience of being pulled out of his body up into what feels like up into the stars, up into space. And there he receives a rapid download of information and understanding and then gets whooshed back into his body. And when he comes to in his body, he has information and understanding that he did not have before. And I mean things like, um, advanced knowledge of advanced mathematics, advanced physics, quantum phenomena, things he did not learn in school, all of a sudden it's there. And as he's gone through life, he says it's almost as if there's a higher, immaterial, more intelligent, more conscious version of himself in a sort of bubble up there somewhere but it's connected with his material self here on planet Earth. And his higher self uh, is continually feeding him with information, nudges, helping him make progress through life. Now, when he described that to me, I hadn't heard anything like it, except from the Cathars in the Long Dock. Because you read Taran's story, you might say, well, that sounds awesome can i have that experience without being struck by lightning thank you very much and the cathar said yes you absolutely can and here are the protocols for achieving that experience they fully believe that every single one of us 
not just unusual people who get struck by lightning. Every single one of us can have this experience of tapping higher information to support our progress through life. It's similar to the worldview that you will hear from traditional healers around the world who perceive every one of us as having an invisible team of helpers nudging us through life, supporting our health and our progress. But the Cathar vision, Taran's, is different in the sense that it's not others helping us, it's higher dimensions of ourselves. And this echoes hermetic information from the deep past. And so this is where the Cathars got some of their information from, this ancient fusion of Egyptian and Greek knowledge that we can find in the hermetic tradition in some of the Gnostic texts. And I mentioned Taran and I mentioned the Cathars to show this is not theory only. This can be a living experience that every one of us can aspire to. Yeah, it's ama it's amazing. It really is. I, I thought I thought I was wondering what do you think of the Gnostic perspective? Um, like because okay, it's a, it's an interesting perspective. Like you have the the Gnostics and then they believe in a demiurge and they kind of believe in like a it's almost like a simulation type theory. And I mean, like that we the, the the demiurge controls Earth and um and it, it's like a false god. And but have you studied this? And what are your thoughts on it? Well, the Gnostic texts represent quite a kaleidoscope of texts. Um, and they're a reminder that in the beginning, Christianity itself was a kaleidoscope of ideas and theologies and experiences and practices. And then as institutional Christianity grew up and was anchored to the Roman Empire, became the Imperial Department of Religion, some of these more interesting ideas and texts were, were just pushed out of the core curriculum and with such force that the Gnostic texts, many of them were literally buried in the desert for their protection. So they'd not be burned, so they'd not be lost to history. And then in the 20th century, we've discovered a great many of them and can go back and reread them and find out what was there in the mix in the beginning. So they, they, they talk about experiences that are hinted at in the canonical texts, but to develop further in the Gnostic texts. So your question was specifically, just remind me, about... What are your thoughts on the Gnostic perspective of, of the world view, reality? Right. Yeah. So the worldview, their worldview really is unpacked uh, beautifully, I would say, by Plato. So Plato believed that this material universe is an emanation of or from something else and that consciousness precedes material and he gets to that conclusion through his logic applied to things we all observe so he, he comes to this mind-boggling idea that when you go back to the beginning let's talk about that for a moment einstein theory of relativity proved mathematically let's put it that strongly that time has a beginning, that energy, space, and time all began in the same moment. This is a mind-boggling idea. So that means that we always have this question, what was before? What was before the universe looked like this? What was before the Big Bang? And Einstein says that you go far enough back and you'll reach a point where time begins. And when you reach that point, 
before doesn't mean before anymore. <laughs> and Plato reaches that point and he says, when you get to the point where before no longer means before, you're looking at a unified field of intelligence and consciousness. And it fractalized into the material universe. The material universe exists in order for that consciousness to experience itself and express itself. The stars, the planets, you and I are all here as part of that consciousness experiencing itself. When you put nuts and bolts on that and ask what that looks like, you get to the theory of panspermia. Uh, and that's a theory held to by many serious um, scientists, particularly in the area of DNA research. So Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA taught this. It's the idea that the genetic coding for biological conscious intelligent life is part of the cosmos in the same way that gravity, time, and light are, that they are part of the properties of the universe, and that whenever this genetic coding lands in an hospitable environment, meaning a planet with water on it, it will generate forms of life similar to the ones we're familiar with on planet Earth. Plato also talks about other forms of life who are transdimensional, who are so powerful compared to us that it's mind boggling and that they can download physical forms from the coding that produces stars and planets and, and human beings. And so it's in that territory we begin to get into this idea of the demiurge, the craftsman. That's what the craftsman is, someone who can download from the codes to create the physical things. It's in that territory that we hear Plato's language for virtual universe or simulated universe. Plato, when he talks about these things, is distilling something that was part of the international worldview at that time. And that's why we are hearing these same thoughts in the Gnostic texts. Some of the writers of the Gnostic texts may have derived thought directly from Plato. Others were hearing it because it, this was just the thought world of that time. And it was an acknowledgement of all these layers of being, a populated universe, cosmic cousins on other planets, transdimensional entities who are so more powerful and different to us that it's almost unimaginable but then protocols for getting in contact with them and tapping their information. All that is in the mix of Plato and the Gnostic texts. And it was all deemed not very useful to the feudalized vision of Christianity that the Roman Empire had, who really wanted something much simpler. One God at the top of the pyramid, just alongside the emperor. And then in the middle, the senators and the bishops. And then at the bottom, the priests and the people meekly paying, praying, and obeying. They wanted to run the empire in the same way any government wants to run its territory, with full spectrum dominance over their populations, where they say what the official sources of information are. They don't want uh, an empowered population that says, well, you've just given us this information, but our interdimensional informers have told us this. They don't want independent news agencies, and certainly not at that level. And I think for that reason, uh, religion has often been pared down to something much simpler, much more empowering to the elites and disempowering to the plebs. And Gnosticism represents a different world, 
a world where you and I can download cosmic information, can have cosmic contact, and can have information that's empowering to our own health and progress through life without us de being dependent on authorities to tell us what's what or to give us this, that, and the other. So it goes back to the idea of our human potential, right? It, it all, it's all related, it seems like. It's all enmeshed, that's right. And I think it's, that's why these narratives are suppressed. If these ancient narratives were just saying, paleo contact, in the past, our ancestors were taught agriculture by ETs, I think you could let that story lie. But because it's all enmeshed with stories of you and me uh, achieving greater power, greater independence, higher cognitive abilities, I think that's why the indigenous narratives have, have been suppressed, because governments want governable populations. That is why, for instance, in the United States of America, indigenous tr um, traditions of initiation were illegalized for 100 years. That's why in the USA, Canada, and Australia, from 1880 to 1980, there were stolen generation policies, kidnapping children, taking them away from indigenous parents so there could be no transmission of these powers from one generation to the next. Because the conquering forces in each of those countries wanted full spectrum dominance, wanted a population that's easily governed, didn't want other sources of power and or information. If you think of the history of empowered individuals over and against states wanting full spectrum dominance, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, um, I, it, it's, it's so interesting. I wanted to ask you, this made me think of something. Is it true that NASA is possibly funding theologians to relay a message about contact, which this makes me think about like, what you were saying made me think about that. Like, I heard, I heard something about, you say something about that in another show. Yes. Well, the short answer is yes, it is true. Um, NASA and uh, Snopes uh, have been anxious to say, no, they don't employ theologians. But uh, the fact is, uh, what NASA is quite happy to say it has done, is they have funded theologians to help them think through issues of how to communicate information about ET contact. And so the unit that did this research is it, one of these cases of subcontracting it out. This conversation was important to NASA. And so they sourced 24 theologians to work together and to address these questions of what are the theological implications of contact and how would we best communicate it? And it's interesting that NASA did that and the Vatican did it and the Royal Society did it. And they've been fairly open about those conversations. Again, I think it's a little hint that we're being um, prepared, prepared for disclosure for a little bit more information. <laughs> it seems like it, and it's exciting. We're living, we're definitely living in the most exciting times, I think. Like I've seen, even, even if the congressional hearings didn't give out much, you know, I think the one guy mentioned Maelstrom in there, and he mentioned, I talked about this before on my show, but he, I was excited when he mentioned Maelstrom and he mentioned uh, the Admiral Wilson leak, which are two huge things in ufology, you know, which deal with our nuclear weapons and then the, the leak of, you know, put information. But um, 
I think we're going to get to a point where these things become more commonplace. I think it's going it, I think it's like a slow drip to maybe control the public's uh, perspective on it, maybe so people don't kind of lose their mind or I'm not, I'm not really sure why it's a slow drip, but it's definitely a slow, slow drip. Do you have a theory on why it might be a slow uh, leak of information? Yes, I, I think it has to be a slow drip, uh, as you say, to habituate people to the idea. I think what, um, what our governments want to avoid is that very percussive moment where um, the president of the United States of America steps forward and says, my fellow Americans, I got something I want to tell you. And all of a sudden we're told we've been in contact for 70 years and we've lied about it. And in, we may even have killed a few people along the way to keep a lid on this because we didn't think you could cope. Uh, I'm so sorry for the people who've frozen to death in the winter and those who've lost their homes because they can't pay their utility bills because we have had access to free energy all this time. I think they're avoiding a percussive moment like that because of the political fallout. It's not, I don't think, that people would lose their minds because they think we're in contact. I think a huge proportion of uh, Americans have worked out we're probably in contact. People around the world have worked out we're probably in company. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is trust in government. If they come forward and say there's been a cover-up on this scale, and then how do they deal with the follow-up questions? So who's in charge? Uh, if there's an intergalactic federation, as Heyer Shed says, uh, who's representing us on that body? Uh, these elected officials, in whose interest the decision is being made uh, we've been electing you guys to run our country Are you saying somebody else has been running our country i mean can you imagine the political complexity of all the obvious questions that come from a moment like that far simpler to drip 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 we're in contact we've been in contact we're in a managed situation we're in a stable situation yes we know about this technology yes we know where that came from so on and so forth bit by bit. And I would say that that approach is working because when the Pentagon um, verified the UFO phenomenon, went by without a blip. So that if I say to people, do you realize that uh, the Pentagon has now authenticated the UFO phenomenon? They said it's real. And they said that there's zero evidence that uh, these UFO craft are terrestrial craft by terrestrial intelligence. They've come from somewhere else. The, the reaction of non-shock is extraordinary. Um, not even an, I don't believe that. Oh, yes, I think I'd heard that. So if that's the reaction, then I think the drip, drip, drip is working. There's no blind panic there, is there? No. Definitely not. I think I think I see why now, but I, I don't know how they're ever going to get, like you said, around the, the idea that we have the anti-gravity and free energy, because I think we have had it. And that's going to be a tough one to for them to come out to the public with. And I, I, I don't I can't figure out for the life of me how they'll do it. But I, I think maybe they, they eventually will. Right. Well, right now in Australia, this is very topical. Right now, we're having an energy crisis in Australia where uh, Australians can't afford their electricity bills, where gas is not available to Australians, despite the fact that there's a huge gas surplus. Why is that? 
because there's a gas market and it's more important for private companies to make enormous profits than for Australians to be able to heat and light their homes. There's an enormous gap. There's an enormous oil market that has dominated um, foreign policy, uh, warfare, the domestic life of uh, Americans in the USA for decades and decades and decades. So much of our international politics is built on the politics of oil. What on earth would happen to these vested interests who pay for government policy all around the world if all of a sudden oil and gas are not necessary because we've got free power? Yeah. It is profoundly disrupting to acknowledge there's a simpler way of getting power, as Tesla said all those years ago. And it's one of the reasons why at a human level, we're still in a policy of non-disclosure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the, the last question I wanted to ask you was, um, you got to work with Mauro Beglino. I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce his name. I, I remember him and he worked with uh, Gerald Clark before they did a show on you know the Anunnaki and stuff. I just wanted to see, I watched your video, but I'd like for you to tell the audience you know, what your experience was like you know, doing a show with Mauro because I really respect what he has to say on you know, the, the, the paleo contact as well. Yes, I really respect Mara as well, which is why I'm very happy doing this series with him, which is going out on the Mara Bellino channel and on The Fifth Kind. I find it really kind of funny that three, um, three significant writers in the field of paleo contact, Eric von Daniken, Mara Bellino, myself, we've all come to it via theology. And that's what we're talking about in the series. It's issues of Bible translation that have opened up the world of paleo contact to us. Now, when I wrote Escaping from Eden, I was looking at some key words in the ancient Hebrew texts that point to paleo contact. And I was following my nose, following my own logic, following the data, reaching these conclusions. And then almost I was finishing the book when I discovered, oh, I'm not the first person to have followed this white rabbit. And I discovered Zechariah Sitchin, done something very similar. And I discovered Marabellino. And I took great courage from Marabellino's experience because his expertise in Bible translation is not to be sniffed at. He was producing the translations for Vatican approved interlinear Bibles, where he has to give a precise etymological rendering of each word in the Hebrew text and then you produce the translations alongside. But when you do it that closely, you realize there are many texts that are not about God, but that have traditionally been translated that way. He followed that data at a great cost to himself because um, it meant that he could no longer work for the Paulist press producing interlinear Bibles because he was asking inconvenient questions. There's technology in this text. Why don't we translate it that way? There are advanced beings from off planet here. Why don't we translate it that way? There's a wormhole here. Why don't we translate it that way? And so as I discovered the work of Mauro, I was very encouraged. I wasn't the first person to think this, that someone with his credentials in Bible translation was reaching the same conclusions as myself. And so when we finally met, it was a great pleasure meeting him and I'm now really enjoying this work together, which I hope will really shine a light for a new generation 
on the information that's in the Bible that means you really can't go home believing the uh, old stories, God stories that we told from out of the Bible and miss out this whole layer of ancient ET contact curated so carefully by the ancient writers of the Hebrew texts. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. And just to finish up, I just want to do uh, thank you so much for coming on. I don't have any other questions. If there's anything else you would like to cover or if you just want to tell everybody where they can find the books, uh, it's up to you. But um, if you have any final words or if you want to just tell everybody your website. Would... Well, I've been so enriched by uh, contact with people who read my books. So I just encourage you, if you've read Escaping from Eden, Echoes of Eden, The Scars of Eden, then you can get into conversation with me through The Fifth Kind on YouTube. I'm in the comments there every day. In the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube, I'm in the comments every day. I do coaching with people who are trying to process journeys of reframing or experiences that they've had that have bust them out of their worldview. You can come and find me at paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S.com. And if you've not yet read Escaping from Eden, Echoes of Eden, The Scars of Eden, you can go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Hive, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, get hold of those. And I'll look forward to hearing from you and getting into conversation with you. I agree. And they're amazing books. I, I love them all. And I want, thank you so much, Paul. This was awesome. And uh, I, I look forward to talking to you next time. I heard you're writing a fourth book. Oh, yes, I'm already writing the notes of the next one. It's, uh, it will follow on from the Eden Trilogy, and it will dig a little bit deeper, and it will look at the question of um, what was the Bible about then? Once we realize there's paleo contact in it, okay, it changes it a bit. So what did our ancestors want us to know? And that's where I'm going. That, that should be amazing because like, you know, it would be interesting is like, I'd like to know who this Yahweh figure was like, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it, I, you know, I know Gerald Clark thought he was Enlil. And then I think when Gerald talked to Mora Baglino, he said that maybe Mora thought that maybe he was like a, maybe a lesser Anunnaki that he was like under maybe Enlil, maybe his son or something, but I'd like yes. to know who this figure was because it's he's very mean in the old testament then in the new testament it's a it's a brand new god so i don't know if this well, is an alien yeah. to what people yeah absolutely to what people's appetite for that in echoes of eden i argue that the that many of the yahweh narratives actually belong in our world's panoply of dragon narratives wow i believe that's where the name came from and i give evidence for that in echoes of eden and in the next book, I'm going deeper into that territory to show exactly where that fits in our ancient panoply. Wow, this is amazing. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Robert. Look forward to next time. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Have a good night. You too, bye.